Hello and welcome to this episode. I am your host, Dave, and I am here with my co-host, Emily. We are talking to Claire Ligori. Claire is a principal software engineer at Amazon Web Services, and she is the person that when I started AWS, I was like, what does DevOps even mean at Amazon? And I found one of Claire's talks. I found, and I'm going to link this uh, in, the, in the show notes, a builder's library article on automating safe hands of deployments. So just really happy to have you on the show today. I'm excited to be here. So what is different about... Amazon and writing software. What does it mean to be an SDE? How, how long have you been here and what was that change like uh, when you first came to Amazon? I've been at AWS for seven years now. And at my previous job, I was working on a team where we sold package software and we had a new version come out once a year. And working on uh, web services now that feels unimaginable at this point. Um, and the industry has changed a lot and, and pivoted a lot more towards, towards SaaS offerings. But at the time, we would have that one big release a year and we would work all year on getting towards that one release. Um, and then during the year, we would have these kind of patch releases or even hot fixes for individual customers. And so there was not a lot of a feedback loop from customers and their installations of the software of how it was doing once they installed it and started running it, um, whether they were having issues with it, whether it was performing well. We just kind of had to ask people and it was not a very fast feedback loop. It would take months to get feedback. And coming to Amazon, where we release multiple times a day and we have all kinds of instrumentation about what the experience of the customer is with these APIs, how fast the latency is, how many errors they're getting. It's a hugely fast feedback loop. And I think that really makes the, the wheel of continuous delivery spin really is that feedback loop that we have with instrumentation going back into our pipelines and going back into um, what we work on day to day, how we decide what we're going to work on. And as an individual engineer, are you looking at those metrics every day? Is there like a weekly report? Is it something that you think about when you're coding? Or is it something that's a, you know, kind of a dashboard that you own this service and you're looking at and continually thinking about optimizing? Well, one of the things at Amazon is that the way that we practice DevOps is that the team is really responsible for operating their service top to bottom. So that means they are also responsible for looking at those metrics and, and owning those metrics, owning, uh, adding those in, that instrumentation to the code. So that's certainly something that we look at, you know, both when I'm writing the code and when I'm reviewing the code, making sure that we have the right metrics in place or we understand how this code is going to change the metrics. Is it going to make performance better? Is it going to make it worse? Um, and then the weekly, we typically have what we call an ops review, where as a team, we get together and we look through almost all the metrics that we have to try and capture things that maybe didn't jump out during uh, deployment or didn't trigger any alarms on those metrics, but that we want to 
pay close attention to. Um, often what I find is uh, there are, we'll see some early spikes in metrics that aren't really enough to trigger any alarms, but we need to start paying attention to it before it becomes a much bigger problem. Uh, so if we can catch those kind of early canaries uh, in the coal mine early, then we can, we can fix it. Um, and then the sort of the last step of the sort of cycle of, of metrics um, and operations is that all of those metrics feed back into our deployment pipelines. So all of our pipelines have um, automatic rollback enabled, and those go off of those same metrics that we look at in the weekly ops review so that uh, I don't, as a, as a developer, have to be staring at the dashboard while I'm deploying. It can kind of be something that I trust in the pipeline to roll back if, if something is uh, affected so bad that it's triggered alarms or anything like that. The pipeline will automatically roll back. And uh, often, even by the time that uh, the on-call engineer gets engaged, the pipeline has already started rolling back. Um, so it's really kind of doing half of our job for us in, in getting things to uh, get back to a, a I have a I have a quick, super quick question on that. Like, can you as a developer, I just like imagine, and this is my own personal history, like pagers going off, right? Or, or cell phone notifications. Like, can I as a developer halt that rollback of like, you know, there was something in that event that happened. This is why it happens. Or is it just automated and it goes? Absolutely. The kind of the first rule of being that on-call engineer or being an operator of the service um, is to mitigate impact uh, as quickly as possible before looking for the root cause. And so that's really why our pipelines start that rollback automatically is that that's almost always the first step towards mitigation is rolling back and then figuring out the root cause of what exact code change caused that problem later. But if we find that that wasn't necessary or it's causing maybe even more problems to do that rollback, we do have those, uh, those abort buttons in the pipeline to be able to to halt that rollback and then um, kind of revert that rollback to what was deploying. Okay, there's so much in all of this that I have questions about. So you brought up something about, you know, um, little spikes or um, issues that come up in the sort of observability, but didn't trigger alarms. And I was just last week, I'm thinking about the difference between observability and reliability. And I think sometimes they get grouped in as if observability is the thing that enables reliability. But for me, they're separate, right? Observability is an engineer's um, capacity to understand the inner workings of the system. And then that is, that is very different and can often be a precursor to the issues that would cause um, a user impacting or customer impacting event or, or uh, lack of reliability. Do you agree with that? Well, observability is so much more than just metrics. Right. So typically when we look at alarms, we are alarming on something like an availability metric. So yeah. do we have 99.99% uh, successful API calls at this moment, if not alarm and engage, engage the on-call engineer? Uh, but observability is not just those um, sort of very high level metrics. It's also the logs that go into it, the traces that go into it. 
it's how that on-call engineer, once they actually get engaged, or as we're looking at the metrics weekly, how they troubleshoot what's actually going on here. And so one of the things that we tend to do uh, during the weekly ops review is that the on-call engineer is responsible for what we call a spike analysis. So if we do see a spike in the metrics uh, that looks pretty bad, but may or may not have triggered an alarm, someone goes and looks at the logs, looks at the traces to try to figure out what happened then. And do we think that that's a problem that's going to keep happening over and over again? And we can be proactive and start to fix those problems, those root causes before they cause much bigger problems. Yeah, no, that I think that's fascinating. And I wanted to ask the the Amazon way of um, applying DevOps where you do, you have these, the engineering service teams, feature teams, whatever you want to call it, that actually implement all these metrics and um, are in are in charge of their own reliability and uptime and all of that. Has that ever backfired? Like, do, do developers struggle with that sort of additional skill set? I mean, that's a lot for any one group of engineers or any one engineer to, to understand fully. Like, what's what's been your experience with that? Is it-, <laughs> it, it is a lot for, uh, for a service team to own. Um, one of the kind of the philosophy that it comes from is that unless you have that pager pain personally, you as a developer are unlikely to have the kind of ownership it takes to really drive down those availability metrics towards 100%. Uh, And so in order to have, again, coming back to sort of a feedback cycle, unless you directly have that feedback cycle, um, you're you're not going to have that same sense of, of urgency around tracking down those problems, making sure that they're fixed before they become bigger problems. Uh, and often when I've seen at least teams that are have a separate operations team, um, that feedback loop gets broken. You have a communication problem or uh, you know, you're just not hearing the, the pain that the operations team is having day to day with the code that you just pushed out. So uh, we do a couple of things to try to um, help teams sort of train up on uh, what we call operational excellence. Um, so one is that uh, we've had a lot of learnings for our, our long history of operating web services. Yes. Uh, and so we really try to um, codify those into some best practices um, and into some teams that can help you out. So one example is, um, you know, sometimes an event is quite large. It involves multiple AWS services, and it's quite a, a lot to uh, to put sort of coordinating all of that onto a single on-call engineer for one service. Yeah. And so uh, we have a, a team whose job it is to coordinate these larger events um, and help to engage the right teams, help to engage the right subject matter experts and principal engineers to get on the call and start helping so that we can let the individual service team on-call engineers kind of own mitigating the impact in their own individual service and, and the, the space that they know well. Um, and then that team also does a lot of training for our individual on-call engineers of, um, of how to respond to some of these, uh, these pages and, and what steps to take um, through the kind of life cycle of some of these events. 
I think that's fascinating. And it's, um, I'm sure it's such a trip to, to be a software developer, a software engineer at Amazon and have to, to kind of experience all those different insights and, and opportunities. With CICD, I'm making the assumption that teams, the service teams, are capable of determining their own CICD process. Is that true? That's right. So we have, um, you know, typically we let service teams really um, identify their own destiny, drive their own destiny. Uh, and so they are responsible for creating their CICD pipelines, what those need to look like, what exact individual steps happen. Um, but because we've gotten, we've been doing CICD for so long now, and we've really, um, really iterated and learned some best practices, we do have some great ways that um, we can kind of evangelize internally some of the best practices for these pipelines. Uh, some of those have turned into um, a rules engine that actually evaluates your pipeline for how safe it is. And so, for example, if you don't have integration tests before going to production in your pipeline, um, you get kind of a, a rules violation from this engine and you can figure out how to go, what integration tests need to run in your pipeline. You know I picture you this as remember in Mario Kart where when you were going the wrong way, that person like that little creature would come up and be like, wrong way. No, no, no integration tests. Danger, danger. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> we should implement that. Um, so, like, so if the number of environments would then vary by team. What? How do they sort of come to those um, decisions about what environments they want to include? Uh, is there sort of that AWS back best practices um, that people recommend, or you know, what have you seen? So I think in terms of environments, really the rule of thumb is reducing the risk of an individual deployment as much as possible. And the way that we do that is to uh, sort of create chunks of, of capacity across production. So in AWS, um, we have regions, we have availability zones, and internally we have something called cells, which further uh, segments up an AZ. And that is really for making sure that we limit as much as possible any potential customer impact of these deployments. And so a pipeline can get quite uh, large in terms of number of environments. You can have all of the AZs, 70 plus AZs, plus multiple cells per AZ. So there's quite a few deployments going on. So it's very important that it's automated. That's, yes. <laughs> that's really what the pipelines have given us is I don't have to click a hundred buttons in order to deploy my service out to production. Um, but the pipeline helps to coordinate some of that and group some of those deployments um, and to move, sort of move commit through these deployments. Uh, one of the things that was interesting, you know, speaking of what was uh, sort of different when I came to Amazon from my previous experience was that I thought of pipelines as very much just a script. Like you have a, you know, back in the day, it was probably like an SCP uh, zip file over to a server <laughs> script. Um, now it's a little bit different, but um uh, you know, as a script and you had, you know, if you had 100 deployments you needed to do, they would all happen kind of sequentially in that script. And Amazon pipelines are much more of 
um, sort of uh, workflows that you promote one to the other. So we have, uh, even if we have, you know, let's say 10, <clears throat> 10 groups of, of 10 deployments each, you can actually have those running in parallel, uh, deploying different commits as they get promoted through the pipeline. Uh, and so when I tell people, you know, oh, my my pipeline is so long that it kind of goes off the page, uh, that's not necessarily that it's going to take, you know, weeks and weeks for, for a change to, to get yeah. through because it's blocked on something else. Uh, they keep flowing because we, we have uh, really independent workflows that just promote commits to the other as opposed to just one single script that gets to run like once a week, basically, <laughs> like yes. I was used to before. Well, and I think, you know, because all of the deployments are done in the a canary style, it does, even if it took a really long time for the deployment to take place, which, you know, typically it wouldn't, but even if it did, it doesn't really matter because it's not like you have to flip the whole script in as little time as possible. We're not sitting there on a Saturday morning trying to make sure this works anymore. You know, it is this, it's about flow and making sure that it continuously moves, um, but not necessarily all at one time or, or like that. So I like the the workflow approach. I think that's really smart and it captures the the almost multi-threaded uh, processes that we have going on in any CICD. Yeah, and it doesn't it it doesn't prevent developers from continuing to do their work, right? Um, we can make as many commits as we want, incremental tiny commits and get those flowing out. And because the pipeline doesn't block for very long, it might block on like one deployment then uh, you get down to very few commits actually going into each individual deployment, which even further reduces the risk of that deployment causing any problems because yes. you're not trying to package like the entire week's 100 commits into that weekly deployment. You're keeping that pipeline flowing. So you're also keeping the number of commits per deployment really, really low and keeping that risk down. Yes, that's the the first way people are like, oh, we can't deploy, we can't do this horrible process every day. No, no. And I'm like, but it's not a horrible process if you do it every day. Right. Um, you you said uh, earlier, like root cause, root cause analysis. I, I think it's been interesting to watch this proceed through the industry because it's still something that we talk about a lot at AWS. But I know the greater industry is like starting to move away from that term, because, you know, in a, a very complex distributed socio-technical system, having one root cause is kind of a, a misnomer or a, <laughs> a um, not useful exercise. Uh, so I wanted to know what you think of that. Like, how do you think we should approach, you know, post-incident reviews or these sort of spike analyses um, and think about these systems and the, the actual causes of failure? I do like the way that Amazon does it. Uh, we call our postmortems uh, COEs, correction of errors for the historical reasons. I don't know. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I don't. I don't feel like we're limited to a single root cause. That is, you know, usually, especially in complex events, we find so many root causes. Um, so one of the things that uh, that we typically see is. Um, sort of a, a, a huge hierarchy of uh, post-mortem analysis that happens from a very complex event uh, where each individual team is finding that, you know, maybe there was this, this sort of root cause that, let's say, um, a few years ago, 
um, S3 had a, a, a major event and that had impact across a lot of different services. But instead yeah. of saying the one root cause was this one problem in S3, uh, we looked really deeply at each service. Each service team looked deeply at their service about how did their service actually react in that failure case? Oh. And we found lots of interesting things where uh, the the behavior of their system was not at all what they expected when they hit this error condition. Yes. And so uh, we ended up with a huge number of COEs across all of these teams, each of which likely had multiple root causes uh, based on the behavior of the system. And so each service team was able to take uh, you know, more than one action item to go and uh, fix what they've learned about their service. Um, and and change runbooks, change the actual behavior of the service, do game days around that that failure mode for their service, um, and so we're able to take you know one thing where we could have said yes there was there was one root cause, but we're able to take that and and learn as much as we can about it because it is quite a rare thing to happen in AWS. It's true, but I this is my favorite thing about software. It, it's like, surprise, <laughs> you didn't actually call that right. Like we we have so many assumptions about the mm -hmm. system and how we think it should behave or will behave. And then it's just, it goes in a totally different direction. It's just, um, it's, it's, you know, a little bit of chaos for your, your day. That's right. <laughs> so we didn't talk really about how the actual environments are set up from uh, developer standpoint. So is there alpha, beta, gamma production? Is there chaos engineering that happens? And the one other, like, there's so many questions we can ask you, but just one other thing is like, what's the typical, so you're on containers right now, like, what's the typical amount of daily deployments to production that's happening across teams? And are they instantly moving towards being live? Or are they flagged? Um, so that they can go out in, you know, kind of a release across multiple uh, services or a specific time frame. Yeah, so I can talk about kind of the, the life of a commit as it makes its way out to production. Yeah, um, So uh, as much as possible, we try to remove any kind of manual steps from the release process. And so the last time that a human, an engineer, actually looks at a commit is, is really during code review. And so that's the time that we look at uh, you know, what I was saying earlier, is this instrumented appropriately? Do we think this is you know, not just correct and, and, and applies to our, our sort of coding standards, but also we're going to be able to operate this because we are the same people that have to operate it and, and get paged for it. Um, so once we we approve the, the code review, it goes into the pipeline and it does go through several pre-production environments. So we really try to um, prevent as much as possible, even that first production small deployment from impacting customers. We want to catch as much as we can in pre-production environments. So typically we'll have um, an alpha maybe an alpha and a beta, sometimes just a beta. And that's really the first time that your code has been deployed into a shared environment across the team. And we start to run some integration tests. And so because that's the first stage, it tends to be the um, 
most broken stage, <laughs> most often broken environment, uh, you know, integration tests failing, et cetera. And so then it once it passes tests there, it moves into uh, gamma. And I, I like to describe gamma as as close to production as possible. Uh, we really look at, you know, not just does it pass integration tests, but is it safely deployed? Is it monitored well? Is it going to trigger any alarms in production? So we run all the same alarms, all the same monitoring canaries um, and synthetic traffic against gamma that we run against production. It has the same deployment nice. strategy, rolling deployments or blue-green deployments as we have in, in production. And so we try to keep that very very clean and pristine uh, because it's our last one of sometimes our last chance to to prove out a change before it goes to production. Um, and then sometimes teams have a, a stage called Zeta. Sometimes teams call it different things, but it's kind of a, a compatibility stage. So often people ask me, you know, how do you roll out changes to database schemas and things like that? How do you test that before production? And sometimes uh, teams use Zeta for that. So they'll they'll do something like uh, make a change to an API or, or a database schema. Then they'll sort of test what is the current software that's in production against this one change. Uh, because Gamma tends to be all these pipelines have Gamma and they're all kind of working together as a, as a Gamma staff. Right. Zeta is that that way to test, is this compatible with what's currently deployed in production? Or have we somehow made two two changes that that were compatible together, but they're going to go out to production at different times? So uh, then, once we get into production, that's when we start to hit those those sonal deployments or cellular deployments uh, that go out across all of the different regions, and that can actually take uh, for an individual change that could take even up to a couple of weeks to depending on on how fast the team wants to go to get it all the way through production because it goes through lots and lots of small small deployments that then get automatically monitored for a little bit to make sure there hasn't been any customer impact before it goes on to the next deployment and um you know it, what's nice is that it's Again, it's not an engineer staring at a dashboard the whole time because right. you would never get anything done if you had to sit at a, at a dashboard for two weeks looking at a change rolling through the pipeline. Right. So it's all, that's all automated and, and automatically rolled back. Um, but we tend not to use um, a lot of flagging. We just want to get things into customers' hands, like fixes into customers' hands as soon as possible. But uh, the way that we mitigate that is, is by these very small deployments that are going to uh, impact very small percentage of requests or, or small percentage of our customer workloads. Um, and then I think chaos engineering is kind of the, the next thing that, that the Amazonians will start um, experimenting right. with. That's not been something that's taken off much internally yet. Uh, uh, but I think I think that's the next thing. Um, one of the things that I like about Amazon is that we we very much don't feel like oh we figured out CI/CD we're good. <laughs> we keep iterating on on our release practice and and on deployment practices and um, on sort of reliability and performance engineering. And so I think that's that's one thing that we're starting to get interested in is, is chaos engineering. 
Thank you so much, Claire, for coming on. It's, where can people f- check out your latest content or, or find you online? Uh, they can look at my Twitter, Claire underscore Ligori, um, on on Twitter. Excellent. Thank you so much. This was Thank great. Thank you. It was awesome connecting.